4: children of the night, and welcome. Well, they're finally done. For those of you waiting with bated breath to discover what we've got in store for you, our updated Patreon will be live sometime this weekend. But here's a sneak peek at some of the things we've got in store. For all you wonderfully twisted individuals who support the podcast on Patreon, we've done our best to give you more of what you love. Horror fiction. We're adding longer episodes with some familiar content, more regular releases of bonus episodes, and exclusive writer and narrator interviews that delve deep behind the scenes to bring you the stories behind the stories. We've also moved the tier for ad-free episodes, too to include a much wider range of supporters. Plus, we've got some exclusive new merch that'll let you show everyone you're not just any old fan of horror fiction. You are one of the children of the night. This weekend, patrons can also catch the first installment of our newest bonus, William Hope Hodgson's The Boats of the Glen Carrig* as narrated by the one and only Seth Williams. Part one goes live on Sunday, and we'll be putting out a new episode of that every week. Look for all of these updates, with more detail, to appear over the next few days over at patreon.com slash tales to terrify, and the perks will begin rolling out shortly after that. We have even more in the works, too that I'll be adding in as soon as they become available. I'll keep you posted. And of course, we can't talk about our Patreon without mentioning those incredible souls who so generously support the show. This week, we raise a blood-drenched glass to the amazing Jason Harmon, Daniel Hellman, Camel Pope, and Addison Smith. Thanks for opening your blackened hearts and supporting the show. We're so thankful and excited you've joined us behind the veil, and I'm thrilled to be able to share our new perks with you. Lastly, before I dive into our story this week, last week I mentioned a contest for a free copy of The Amityville Moon. Well, if you were keeping an eye on our social media for it, I have to apologize. Due to some unforeseen issues on the promoter's end, uh, we had to hold off on posting. So, just in case you were waiting for it, no, you're not crazy, and no, we didn't forget. But I promise, we've got more contests coming up very soon. Enough of the housekeeping. Close your eyes, hold your breath, and let's dive into our fiction. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Natalie Ironside. Natalie Ironside was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi, in the early 1990s, and hopes that someday she may recover. Through a series of complicated misadventures and questionable life choices, Natalie has been a soldier, a lumberman, and a scientist in addition to being an award-winning author of speculative swashbucklers and potboilers. She is a member of both the Horror Writers Association and the IWW Freelance Journalists Union. Her debut novel, The Last Girl Scout, was released in November of 2020, and her short fiction collection, Lead in Roses, Love Songs at the End of the World, was released in July of 2021. Her writing often explores themes of gender, sexuality, trauma, and life in the American South, with a healthy dose of magic, monsters, and women with big guns. She currently lives in Florida, where she divides her time between tabletop wargaming, gardening, roaming by night, and prepping for the looming apocalypse, and can most nights be found bemoaning the horror of it all at natalieironside.tumblr.com. Children of the night, join me for Natalie Ironside's The Wishing Tree, a Tales to Terrify original.
1: For full important safety information, visit juviterm.com.
0: Halloween was always something to look forward to back where I grew up. Our piddly little town tucked into the hills around Bumblefuck, Mississippi didn't have too many people in it. And most of those we did have were straight-laced and God-fearing Baptist types. So there wasn't a lot in the way of big festivals or wild parties. But when that chill north wind starts to replace summer's oppressive heat and the leaves start to change color in the crisp, fresh air as everything settles in for the coming winter, you can feel the air charged with something, the way it is just before a summer thunderstorm. And September would roll into October, and all the spooks and jack-o'-lanterns and cobwebs would come out on folks' yards and in their windows. And we knew there'd be hayrides and haunted houses and, of course, trick-or-treating. I don't have very many happy memories from the old days, as you'll see, but the ones I do have almost always remember Halloween. Every year... Some evening in late October, us kids would pile into Dad's truck and head over to Meemaw's house way out on County Road 93 near Black Creek Road for a big family dinner. And the kids would sit around the fireplace drinking cider and hot chocolate and listening to Meemaw rot our brains with her ghost stories. Nobody could carry a story like Meemaw, and listening to her tell them while the night drew down and that cold north wind howled through the gaps in the walls, you could almost hear all the assorted spooks and haints prowling around in the woods outside. We learned later that about half of ma's stories came out of Alvin Schwartz and M.R. James books, but that ain't nothing. The magic is in the telling. And anyway... The other half were originals that came right out of those dark, cold woods around Black Creek Road. The next morning, we would crawl out of bed tired but restless. There's no sleeping after a night of Mima's ghost stories, and papa would tell us good morning and let us have sips of that brown, muddy coffee he always drank and we'd pile into his big old rattling pickup that smelled of hay and steel cigar smoke and head down the country road a few miles to the feed exchange. Papa would hand us a couple dollars to buy sweets, and Mr. Travis, who owned the place, who would become sort of my father-in-law after I led his daughter astray, would let us have a couple for free. And after Papa had got his business took care of, it would be time for one of our most sacred annual rituals, choosing the pumpkin. We'd go out front where the pumpkins were laid out and we'd pick the biggest, roundest one to take back to Ma's and carve later that night. And after we'd given Jack a scary, jagged face, there would be more hot chocolate and cider and Ma would tell us more stories. There was one story that she never told before that second night, though it was our favorite one to listen to, and would only ever tell it once that year's jack-o'-lantern was leering out from the front porch. Meemaw was a Christian woman, but she was also a woman who knew things. The ceilings in Meemaw's house were all painted sky blue, and there were bottles in the trees out front and hex signs painted on the outside walls, and an iron nail driven into the jam above every door. And it was only after the pumpkin was carved and the front porch was warded to her satisfaction that Mima would tell us about the wishing tree. I think every town has that one road that strange things happen on, and where I grew up, that was Black Creek Road, a two-lane stretch of gravel that connected our piddly little town to I-20 by running through miles and miles of nothing, with a Civil War park to one side and the wildlife management area to the other. There were long stretches of it where a person could drive forever without seeing a building or a single soul, just the woods looming up on either side like walls of a tunnel with occasional glimpses of old abandoned barns or houses looming up out of the verge as they decayed with the undergrowth. Black Creek Road was where people heard strange sounds at night, or saw strange things. It was where folks went missing, and it was a regular occurrence to turn on the news and hear that the state troopers had found human remains dumped along the road or in the woods nearby. Folks avoided Black Creek Road under broad daylight, and it was an unspoken law that you were to never, ever go that way at night. Somewhere out on that stretch of road is a side road, more like a trail, just barely wide enough to take a truck down that splits off into the woods and heads deep out into miles and miles of trees, pressing down on you on either side like walls, their branches intertwined overhead like a roof, until eventually that trail dead ends in a wide-open hollow nestled between two hills. In the center of the hollow, there's a massive live oak, gnarled and twisted with untold age. If you can make it that far, you've found the wishing tree. Something lives in that hollow, ma told us. Something lives in the branches of that tree. And to make a wish at the wishing tree requires three things. A hammer, a nail, and a gift. If you come to the hollow after the sun goes down and you walk up to the tree and you drive an iron nail into its trunk, you'll get her attention. And she'll climb down from the branches with her long, thin, spidery hands. And she'll wheeze at you with her fetid breath that smells like blood and dirt. And she'll stare at you with the empty, dead eyes in her drawn, sunken face. And she'll tell you, to make a wish you can wish for any old thing you want money good health true love good fortune long life whatever your heart desires and she'll give it to you but everything has its price you have to come to the tree with a gift to exchange for a gift and it has to be something of equal value and she gets to decide whether or not it's a fair trade. And if it's not, then she takes what she thinks is the difference. Everyone who makes that journey to the wishing tree comes back with whatever it is they wanted, but they always leave something behind, and God only knows if it was really worth the price. The story had a different ending most times Meemaw told it, a different person paying a different price. But the one that always stuck out to me was the one where a grieving widow asked to see her husband again, and the highway patrol found her stone dead on the side of the road the next day. And ma always had a real good sense about people, always seemed to know what you were thinking before you did. And at the end of the story, every year, she would look right at me, speaking to all of us, but talking at me, and she'd say, "'Now, I ain't gonna tell you not to ever go find that holler, "'cause I know how young folks are. "'I used to be one, hard as that might be to believe. "'And I know if I tell you not to, you're gonna just do it anyways.'" So if you get hit by that curiosity, and you just can't help but go find out if the stories are true, do it in the daytime. Do not go out to that holler after Dark Boy, even if it's just to take a look around, because she always knows you're there. And them dead, empty eyes of hers will look right into your soul and read all your secrets, and she'll whisper them to you, tempting you with an offer you can't say no to. You go out to that holler at night, boy, and even if you can walk away the first time, you are going to come back, and you are going to drive a nail into that tree, and you are going to pay a price. And like I said, me and ma always had that good sense about people. She always seemed to know what people were thinking. And around the time I was 13 or 14, she pulled me aside one night after telling the story and said, Girl, I want you to promise me you ain't gonna go looking for that tree. I know what you're thinking. And to get what you want would be one hell of a price. Don't do it, girl. I won't, Meemaw. I lied. We did find the hauler, and we did find the wishing tree the summer I was 14. There was a Boy Scout camping trip in the Civil War park off of Black Creek Road, back before they kicked me out of Boy Scouts. And one day, me and my brother and our friends decided we were all gonna go and investigate if the local legends were true. It took us all day long, and we were damned close to sunset when we found it. But we did find it. Deep in the woods, nestled between two hills, was a clearing where the trees broke away into golden rods and red clover. And in the center of it stood a gnarled old live oak. We could feel eyes on us as we walked up to it. We could feel something sapping the warmth out of the air the closer we got and the wind rattling the branches sounded almost like whispering, almost like words. The ground around the tree was covered with toys, trinkets, and sealed envelopes, some of them so dirty and weathered and decayed that they must have been there for years. And the tree itself was studded with nail heads from its roots all the way up to its crown and along most of its branches each representin a wish and addin up to more wishes than I could count. We didn't stick around to test out the rest of the story. We were all too chicken shit. But I found out that me, Ma, was wrong about one part. She was wrong about it being safe in the daytime. When I went to sleep that night... I drifted off listening to the wind rattling the branches and the trees overhead, and it sounded almost like whispers. And if I listened close, I could just make it out. I heard a voice, a woman's voice, as cold and dark and empty as a winter night in the woods, repeating two words over and over. Come back. Come back. Come back. And she had a lot more than two words to say in my dreams that night. I tried real hard to forget about that night, and I mostly succeeded. I grew up quick and I grew up hard, the way people like me tend to do in places like that. And I lost most of the friends I'd grown up with and I lost the home I'd grown up in when Dad kicked me out. So I went to live with Ma. and after a while, my big brother Jack grew some loyalty and decided to come with me. And it was high school, and I was a weird loner with long, funny-colored hair who wore black square-neck blouses and maxi skirts to school and smoked cloves behind the bleachers. And through those years, I ate a lot of shit, and learned to take a lot of punches. And honestly, I don't think I would have made it as long as I did if I hadn't had Jack dogging me everywhere and daring anybody to say something. I didn't make but one or two new friends to replace the old. And me and Sarah Travis started dating in eighth grade. And in ninth grade, she broke up with me because she realized she was a lesbian, But then in 11th grade, we were girlfriends again, and having a big laugh about it. Being related to me was social suicide, almost as much as dating me or being me. But Jack is the kind of guy that people just can't help but like. So he had his friends that he'd hang out with and would try to drag me along. As awkward as it was for everybody... They all hated me, and I hated them right back. If my brother is anything, he's loyal. So I had social groups that I moved in from time to time, even if they weren't mine. And that, that was how I met Ray Leach. What can I say about Ray Leach? There ain't much to say. Ray was a small, petty little bully who never accounted for much on his own, but got a leg up in life on account of having a rich daddy. And he didn't seem to want to do much of anything with his life other than be irritating. You know the type. They got him running the government nowadays. Ray was also that kind of asshole who knew how to be subtly irritating, To push somebody's buttons in a way that got to you, but where you'd look like a fool if you tried to say anything about it. So he and I butted heads a whole lot on account of I knew what the score was. We came from the same parts of the internet. And Ray hated me especially. He hated me on general principles just because I had the audacity to exist but he also hated me because he was madly in love with Sarah Travis. One time at one of those parties that Jack kept inviting me to, he tried to ask her out, and she made a fool out of him in front of everybody, and he retaliated by finding me alone, like I usually was, and trying to sweet-talk me and stick his hand up my skirt. I then secured my place as his mortal enemy, by committing the ultimate sin of telling that story to everybody who would listen. One day, at the end of October, the year I was seventeen, I was engaged in my favorite hobby to which I devoted almost all my time in those days. Sitting alone in Meemaw's attic in my underwear, smoking dirt weed and listening to against-me records, and rereading The Lord of the Rings for the hundred millionth time. My important work was interrupted by a knock at the attic door and Jack calling out, Hey, Michelle, Michelle, you up there? I'm fucking busy, I yelled back. Can I come in? Fine, I guess. Give me a minute. And I threw some clothes back on and opened the door to see my big brother standing there. Grinning like a fool. So, you know what day it is? He asked. Saturday? It's Halloween, sis. Sure is. Did you want something? You got any plans for tonight? I rolled my eyes, knowing where this was headed. And I'd had a pretty rough week and was not feeling the holiday spirit. I don't really feel like doing much, man. I was gonna call Sarah and see if she wants to come over, but that's about it. Joe Harrison's having some people over while his parents are out. You wanna come? That was enough to pique my interest. The Harrisons were decent people. And me and the Harrison kids weren't exactly friends. But we got along. I think they were the only black family in the county. And the Harrisons lived on a farm just down County Road 93, not too far away. And something about that rekindled the holiday spirit I'd been missing. I was a little old for hayrides and trick-or-treating, But a bonfire out in the woods sounded like just the thing. I smiled in spite of myself and said, Fine, let me call Sarah. I already did. She's on her way over. Okay, you need to cut that out right now. Cut what out? I socked him in the arm. Knowing me so well, like I wouldn't know my little sister. Now hurry up and get dressed or whatever. It's gonna be dark soon. The Harrison farm was just a few miles down the road, and the three of us rolled up in Jack's truck just as the sun was starting to set and the shadows crept in under the trees. The old house was decorated for the season, and there was a big bonfire going in the Harrison's hayfield, with a smell of smoke and spice carried toward us on the cool autumn wind. And I felt the holiday spirit move me for the first time that year, and I was glad I let Jack drag me out of the house. Like I said, I've always loved Halloween. As we drove up to the hayfield where some other cars were parked... Sarah sat up and looked out ahead of us and muttered, Ah, hell. What's up, sugar? I asked. Race here. The three of us groaned, and Jack said, All right, you two stay close to me, and if he tries to start anything, I'll beat his ass. I'm perfectly capable of beating his ass myself, Jack McCool. "'Sarah shot back. "'But... thanks. "'He probably won't say shit with you around on account of he's a chicken shit, "'but we might still get to hear all about how we need to save Western civilization "'or whatever he's mad about these days. "'There were about ten or twelve people around the fire as we stopped the truck and piled out, "'and a lot of em waved at Jack and Sarah and ignored me.' which was fine by me, except, of course, for Ray Leach and his friends. Well, Ray didn't really have friends, but he did have a gaggle of three or four other walkin', talking migraines who mostly tolerated each other since they hated the rest of the world in more or less the same way. When we walked by, Ray pointed me out to his buddies, And they all laughed on account of my existence is implicitly funny to them. That's a thing about life you'll pick up on after being out for a while. That them type of people may be vicious, but they're really just telling the same three or four jokes over and over. I put an arm around Sarah and kissed her cheek as we walked past, which shut Ray up at least. It was a nice little get-together, with food and weed and bottles of wine passed around the party-goers, mostly just sitting around the fire goofing off and talking, while couples occasionally disappeared out into the darkness and returned a few minutes later. I did not partake of such, on account of me and Sarah had both gotten into the wine right away, so we mostly hung around my brother and dug the scene. Around about midnight, with the moon high overhead and a bank of fog rolling in off the river, everybody was good and mellow, and we all scrunched in close to the dying fire and held our sweeties close and got to work on that timeless Halloween tradition of swapping ghost stories, aided by the fact that by that point we were all tired and drunk. I just sat and listened, glad to be there, glad that I'd come, and remembering why I loved Halloween. Though as the night went on, the wind shaking the trees nearby started to sound a bit too familiar. And I swear I could almost hear those whispers I'd heard all those years ago. Eventually. Someone told the story about the wishing tree. Amid the reverent silence that followed the story, a local one we'd all heard a million times and all been kept up at night by his kids, Ray Leach laughed and slurred, Aw, that's bullshit. There ain't no fucking wishing tree. I don't know why I said anything. Maybe Halloween and the wind in the trees had put me in a wild mood. I don't know. But I laughed and slurred back. Yes, the fuck there is, dumbass. Oh, yeah? And how the fuck would you know, weirdo? Cause I seen it, dipshit. You're a liar and a nutcase. We already knew that but I reckon here's one more thing. And him and his friends all laughed. Four of the people around this fire were there with me when we found it, you bag of milk. Jack, Joe Harrison, and two others looked back and forth at each other and nodded. And Joe Harrison said, She's right, man. It's out there. We saw it. Ray Leach usually backed down when more than one person confronted him about his clown shit. But I guess stolen wine had made him brave, because he laughed again and said, Oh, yeah? Well, then tell me where it is. And I must have been feeling that liquid courage, too, because I shrugged out of Sarah's arms and stood up, and the wind picked up. And I did hear it then, that cold, hollow, rasping whisper, calling out, come back, come back. It's about two miles down Black Creek Road, and then about another mile back into the woods. It ain't even far. Honk, honk. He actually said honk, honk out loud with his mouth, his weird little friends laughed, and I rolled my eyes and said, Sure, dude. Everybody already knows you're a chicken shit. The fuck you just called me? I said you are a chicken shit, yellow coward. And you're a lot of talk and everybody knows it. That's just facts. At least I ain't a freak like you. You're fucking disgusting, McCool. That ain't what you said in my DMs. That caught some laughs, and Ray looked like he was about to jump up and beat my ass, which he might have did, but he didn't say shit. I was loving every minute of this, and I decided to go all in. I turned around and faced the group and said, So, who wants to go? There was stunned silence. But, one by one, people's faces lit up at the prospect. Even Ray, who still held on to some hope of proving me a liar. So we went. There was nobody else on the road so late, which I reckon is how we were able to make it without getting ourselves killed. And the turn off into the dark woods off of Black Creek Road was right where I remembered. And as we wound our way into the trees, and the fog danced around in the narrow cone of the truck's headlights, I felt something watching me out of the darkness, and I knew that heading down that road had not been entirely my idea. We reached the hollow between the two hills, and the tree was right there where I'd left it, though in the darkness it seemed to have grown, its crown of branches stretching up into the darkness and the fog forever. And maybe it was just the booze and weed and the chill night air, but we could feel something radiating off of that tree, something malevolent, something that shouldn't have been there. I knew the others felt it, because I could see the fear and fascination written across their faces. I thought about how stupid this was. I thought about how I'd only come here to show up a school bully who wasn't worth a pile of shit anyways. I thought about how scared Sarah must be. And I thought about how I'd promised my ma that I would never, ever do this and I'd never broken a promise to her before. And I listened to the hollow, rasping whispers that blew toward me off of the cold night wind, and I grinned and asked, Anybody got a nail? I was expecting people to be shocked or to egg me on, and I was expecting Ray to make some sort of crack about how everybody could guess what I would wish for, which would have broken the spell and gotten under my skin on account of he would have been right. But there was only silence. I walked back to Jack's truck and opened his toolbox and helped myself to a claw hammer and a long iron nail. Nobody spoke. Sarah met my eyes and shook her head, silently begging me not to do this. I shook mine back at her and kept walking. Walking up to the live oak through its graveyard of toys and trinkets and notes felt like it took an eternity. And the aura of fear grew stronger and shook me all the way down to my bones but once I started walking, I couldn't stop, like I was being dragged forward. I reached the tree and rested my left hand on the sheet of nail head stud in its trunk, and I felt an icy shiver run up my arm and all the way down my spine. I was in a place I shouldn't be, doing something I shouldn't do. In the presence of something that was more than just a story. Something that was alive. Something that was awake. And some primitive part of my brain was doing its best to let me know. Screaming at me to run. I found a bare patch of bark. And drove my nail into the tree in three quick blows. At first... Nothing happened, or at least I thought that nothing happened. But after standing there and staring at the tree for a bait, I heard someone behind me scream, followed by more screams, and I heard the sound of a car starting up and peeling away, and the noise of branches shaking in the wind got louder, seemed to get closer and I looked up to see that something in the branches over my head was moving and coming down. Something slapped the trunk of the tree just above my head, and I saw that it was a hand, a long, thin hand with fingers that trailed out like twigs and ended in razor-sharp claws like a bird's talon's. Attached to the hand was a long, almost skeletal arm that bent in too many places, and I followed it up to the shape of something bent, twisted, and almost human, perched like a tree frog in the lower branches. In the darkness, I could just make out the outline of a face, long and gaunt, leering at me with a pair of big, white eyes with no pupils. Its mouth opened, and I could see rows upon rows of pearly white teeth glinting in the darkness. You came back to me, she hissed. Fear rooted me in place, and I couldn't speak or move. She laughed, A cold and hollow laugh that sounded like nails on a chalkboard and hissed. They always come back to me sooner or later. Your grandmother came back to me once, you know. But I suppose you guessed that much. Did she ever tell you what she gained or what she lost? I understood something in that moment. I understood that the wishing tree wasn't an urban legend. It was a ritual. That we weren't making wishes and paying for them. We were making prayers and offering sacrifices. And that the thing in the tree wasn't a ghost or a witch or a haint or Whatever. This was a god. My legs were already jelly, so I dropped to my knees. Smart girl, the thing in the tree said. Tell me what you want from me, and you will have it for a price. I tried to banish Mimaw's face from my mind, And I sucked in a deep breath and looked up at the thing in the tree and said, You're inside my head, so I think you already know. But I reckon I gotta say the words. I... I won't... Say the words. Make me a woman. And the thing in the tree laughed laughed long and hard, and shook back and forth as she wheezed and said, "'Stupid girl, stupid girl wishes for what she already has. "'For your next wish, you will ask me to make the sun rise every day "'or turn the sky blue.'" I never liked being laughed at. It didn't quite break the spell, I was still shaking, still couldn't move, but it did something. I met her cold, empty eyes and said, Oh, you know what the fuck I mean. I do, but you must say the words yourself. Those are the rules. Unless you want me to pick for myself and pick the price... Sometimes they do. I thought for a minute, or thought as best I could given the circumstances. And I read the mischief written in those eyes and said, I reckon things that seem too good to be true probably are. I reckon you want me to say the obvious thing so you can take anything in the trade. (sighs) Ha! Stupid girl is not so stupid after all, maybe. Stupid girl is at least not as stupid as her grandmother. So here's what I want. I don't want to be at war with myself anymore. I want to recognize the person I see in the mirror every day. That's my wish. Clever girl. Clever girl knows how to use her words. That's a trifling thing, and you shall have it. But all things have their price. And what is the price for this? I see you've brought me many wonderful things to choose from. Maybe I take your brother. Maybe I take your friends. Maybe I take the pretty girl you came here with. One for another. Or maybe, maybe I take your eyes. Pretty girl has such pretty eyes. Yes, yes, that is what I want. That is the price. Nah, I don't like that price. Too late. It is already spoken. You want your wish, you pay for it. And I want those eyes, those sad eyes. They look mournful and delicious. That's too small. I want to offer you something more valuable. Something bitter. Oh, clever girl likes to bargain. Tell me, child. Tell me what else you have that I do not see. I ain't no folklorist or nothing, but I think I've read this story before. And I think I know what it is that things like you really like. You give me my wish, and I'll give you something I've been holding on to for a while. I'll give you my name. Oh, clever girl knows her stories. Yes, yes, child, we do like names. A name is power. The name of a thing is the thing. You will give this? You will give it freely? I will. Done. A deal is struck. "'Your wish is yours, and your price is mine. "'But is it worth the price to lose yourself and to belong to me? "'Too late. It's done.' "'I shrewd. "'Nah, I ain't lost nothing. "'See, there's old names and there's new names.' and just happens I had one lying around that I wasn't using. The thing in the tree cocked her head to the side and studied me for a long while, until that horrible grin split in her face curled up even wider, and she laughed again, harder than before, and said, "'Clever, clever!' Clever little girl, clever little girl does know how to bargain. Very well, very well, I will throw your garbage away for you, since you were clever. Now, take your gift and get out of here, before I change my mind. I won't tell you exactly what the thing in the tree did to me, but I got my wish on that Halloween night when I was 17, and I bought it for a bargain. Though I will tell you one thing. Me and Jack sure had one hell of a time explaining it to the DMV.
4: That was Natalie Ironside's The Wishing Tree, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator and writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology, and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at TheKMHammond. Thank you, Crystal. Well, children of the night... The hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, a.k.a. Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch we'll take you to our T public store where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often tales to terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself Drew Sebastini with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we pull back the veil on more Tales to Terrify.